Why is the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed your answer to better health and wellness? It's proven quality sleep. Any more questions? Yes, I'm always freezing, and he overheats. It's temperature balancing, so you can sleep better together. But can it help keep us asleep? It senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable. So I'll have more energy for yoga. Yes, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. Namaste. Namaste to you, too. And now, save up to $1,000 on the new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed and adjustable base, only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Y'all ready for this? Yeah? All right. Look at all the nerds in this room. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, Fandom, Feminism, and Harry Potter. Go on. I'm Hannah McGregor. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Neil Barnholden. Which, please, for those of you who don't know, is a fortnightly podcast that Marcel and I have been making since February of this year. Doesn't it feel like so much longer? Yeah. Like years. Every episode I edit feels like an hour <laughs> times a million. That's because it is. Uh, in which we bring together our work as feminist literary critics at the University of Alberta and our love for the Harry Potter world. Uh, Neil is our regular guest host on our movie episodes and a real-life guy with a film degree. <laughs> it's true. It's yep. true. And we invited him here today both because we love him and also because we wanted a token white male panelist in case anybody's really uncomfortable listening to women speak for half <laughs> Just so you know. He's not allowed to talk, though. Yeah. Just Just a pretty face. Yeah. He's just here to give us just some cultural legitimacy. Thanks, Neil. Uh, So who here has listened to Witch Please before? All right. All right. A lot of new people. This is exciting. Yeah. So um, here's how this is going to go. We're going to... Um, chat a bit about the main themes of this panel, um, and then we're going to open it up for questions from the audience. We're going to have lots of opportunities for you to ask us any questions that you might have. Um, I want you to note that we are recording this for a podcast episode, and so if you ask a question, we're going to ask you to come up to the mic and ask a question, and you will be recorded for the podcast. So if you are uncomfortable being listened to by several dozen people, um, (laughs) be aware of that. Um, Also, our erstwhile tech support, Trevor Chow-Fraser... Hi, how are you doing? ...is going to be taking pictures during the panel. Uh, So if you're uncomfortable with your picture being taken, just let him know afterwards, and he will immediately delete it forever. They're not, so if you're frightened of moving pictures um, and the terrifying modernity they represent, you're okay. I think he's making a Harry Potter joke. <laughs> oh, oh, Harry Potter. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with it. <laughs> okay, well, we lost Marcel. All right, anything we want to add about the podcast? No? Are we ready? All right. Wait, no, can I add one thing? (laughs) I'm really excited that for the first time in our recording history, I only have 45 minutes of footage to edit, as opposed to like three and a half hours of us talking. (laughs) We have trouble. We have trouble not talking for a long time. Very excited. (laughs) 
right, witches, gird your loins and grab your copies of The Second Sex because it's time for Hermione Granger and the goddamn patriarchy. (laughs) Which is our brand new segment in which we talk about feminism. I don't think I've ever heard feminism get a round of applause before. I love all of you. so fun. (laughs) All right, so we're going to start off. I have a question for Marcel. Um, I warned Marcel about this question. Hey, Marcel, what do you think it means to be a feminist critic? That's a great question, Hannah. Thanks. Uh, By warn, what Hannah means is that like 10 seconds before we came into this room, she was like, here's this question I'm going to ask you. It's real hard. Uh, So I don't have a a rehearsed answer. So what you will get is... um, what you will get is an answer that comes from deep within my fiery soul. Um, what I would say about being a feminist critic is that um, it's a situation in which you find yourself... Hmm, okay, wait, let me talk about feminist criticism as it pertains to things that I like. <laughs> so often what that means is that uh, while I'm enjoying something, there's this part of my brain that's like, hey, there's this thing that's happening that I don't like, and I have to be like, shut up, brain, I'm trying to watch TV right now, <laughs> or something like that. Um, so being a feminist critic is really, it's really a process of separating out the things that are enjoyable about something and then the things that are deeply troubling to you in, on a political, on a, in a political way. Yeah. Yeah. Or, alternatively, um, separating out the things that you like from the things that, like, Fill your belly with a burning fury of thrill rides. <laughs> I don't... I'm thinking of Mad Max. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Beautiful. Neil, mm-hmm. would you add anything to that? Um, no. It's <laughs> really good. Uh, Neil knows his place. <laughs> Casual right. misandry is what we do best here, which means... <laughs> You told me I was here to license your mysandry, right? Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hashtag no tall men. Um, <laughs> I think that's how that goes. Uh, So we're going to chat a little bit just in these first few minutes about um, to what degree we sort of have this overriding question that we've been chatting about for a little while. (laughs) That's about to what degree Harry Potter is itself um, a quintessentially feminist, um, I was about to say archive because I'm I'm an academic and can't use normal words for things. (laughs) Bunch of books and movies. Is itself quintessentially feminist? Is like, is that intrinsic to it, or is the project that we're undergoing a sort of using a feminist lens on something that, like, might be amenable to a feminist reading, but isn't itself necessarily feminist already? All right. Like, I think that's an important question. Um, We were talking. We were at the the Quidditch in Edmonton panel earlier today. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quidditch. Hi, guys. And we were talking about how Quidditch as a game is um, an incredibly inclusive and particularly gender diverse community. Um, And that, for me, sort of represents this larger trend I think we see in the Harry Potter fandom that it attracts a lot of feminists, a lot of political lefties, a lot of secret communists, um, (laughs) you know, a lot of queer people. I think that a lot of us who have had trouble finding our identities in normative culture find something in Harry Potter mm-hmm. that speaks to us. Um, and I'm curious about what you guys might think that is. I, ha- I, have, this, I have this theory that it's because um, in a lot of ways, even though Harry is uh, a white 
middle-class cisgender male person. Don't forget, straight and able-bodied. Oh, straight and able-bodied. Well, we don't know that he's straight when he's 11. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not make assumptions, Hannah. Sorry, that was a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> Despite the fact that Harry um, fits the stereotype of the majority of protagonists, uh, what am I talking about? Despite that fact, I think a lot of us have this kind of identification with him where he feels really isolated and left out. And then this letter shows up, or and like, an, like a, a billion letters show up. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he realizes that there's actually a place where he belongs. And I think that like that as a fundamental premise is one of the reasons why so many of us who feel otherwise completely isolated by mainstream culture identify so intensely with this series, even though it's not specifically speaking to us. Um, it's this idea that somewhere out there, there is a community of people who is... Incredible, incredible and complex and is not perfect, but is where you belong, and eventually it will find you or you will find it. Yeah. yeah. And there might not be textually queer characters, right? There's, there's the sort of retroactive claim from Rowling that Dumbledore is gay, um, and I, we have a... Hmm? <laughs> okay, well, shipping aside, um, and... <laughs> And, like, subtext aside, right? Like, like there's, there's a number of Hogwarts spinsters who I'm pretty sure are lesbians. Um, but sort of that aside, um, there's also, like, the world, particularly the world that sort of Dumbledore and his version of magic are trying to create is a radically inclusive world, right, that makes a lot of space for difference. And difference that is sort of uncomfortable difference that isn't easily reconcilable with your world as you know it, right? It's mm-hmm. one where you... It's not okay to subjugate people who are different. Right. Um, there's a sort of radical, re- not just respect or tolerance, right? Which is a really, like a mm. word we should all be suspicious of, right? Tolerating people means you still hate them. You just like don't throw rocks at them in public. <laughs> like we can shoot for better than tolerance. Um, but that, you know, an actual inclusivity that means challenging your prejudices about what other people are like and really sort of making space in your world for, mm-hmm. for difference, right? That I think is represented in lots of forms in the books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a fantasy that is partially allegorical but still has links to a recognizable real world that we all inhabit. I think that makes it actually quite relatable mm-hmm. um, as, as a fantasy work. Uh, so I think you follow Harry through this transition from a world that we recognize uh, into yeah this kind of much more interesting and much more exciting world, I would say, in terms of possibility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So Neil was making uh, the point the other day. We were talking about fandom in the Harry Potter world and feminism. Neil made the very interesting point that when Emma Watson recently sort of stepped out and became a public advocate for feminism on a global scale... There was no way in which anybody registered that as at odds with her identity as Hermione Granger, right? That it seemed, it just seemed so obvious. It's like, of course, Hermione Granger's a great feminist, and she's going to, like, go to the UN and be like, I'm mm, pretty sure none of you have read your feminist text, so let me explain to you how feminism works. It's called a library. It's all in there. You can all figure it out. Um, and so that does suggest that there's sort of this, even beyond the edges of the text, this way that that feminism has sort of leaked into the larger world of the fandom. Mm. 
You want to do you want to? <laughs> this was your idea. I just said your idea. I, I agree with your paraphrase of my idea. Thanks. Thanks so much, Marcel. Well, are are we are we segueing into talking about um, like is Harry Potter an intrinsically feminist text? Yeah. Okay. okay. Answer that question. Is Harry Potter an intrinsically feminist text? No, but I would say that it's certainly amenable to it. Like I think that it definitely has. I would call it. I would put it in the category of what I call pro-feminist. So mm-hmm. it definitely has elements to it that are friendly to balls. Sorry. <laughs> that stands Not for badass lady scholars. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. That's at the end of my official title, Hannah McGregor, PhD, BALS. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Harry Potter has... The, so Harry Potter as a... As a a thing as a universe has lots of space in it for feminist feminisms feminisms but is it itself a feminist text i would say no because the protagonist is male because the do any of the movies pass the bechdel test oh there's a question do you guys think any of the movies pass the bechdel test none of them none it's a letdown because everybody's talking about Harry all the time and ultimately when you come back to sort of a whole series of texts that are about like a white man and his victories that's like it's it's a little at odds with sort of one of the arguments feminism makes which is that we need to have more space for women's stories to be told Mm -hmm. and Harry Potter is ultimately a a man's story being told Um, but it's got these spaces in it right it's got a lot of spaces in it that you can find for yourself it's very very friendly towards Mm -hmm. Feminism and feminist participation. Yeah, and in turn, we are friendly towards it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> also, just for the record, the Bechtel test is not a bar for feminism. It's just a bar for like decent representation of women in movies, and it's a low bar. Lowest, lowest bar. Also, some movies pass it and are not feminist. Yeah. What was that movie? Was that Zack Snyder movie? Sucker Punch. That passes the Bechtel <laughs> test, and that's. <laughs> Nothing with that many hot pants can be feminist. <laughs> no dice. So quotable. <laughs> Just speaking sound bites. So oh my. Quotable. This is why it takes so long to edit, because we're so funny. Sorry. Are you all ready to be transported to a magical world of feeling ambivalent about things? <laughs> Then grab hold of the problematic port key, (laughs) in which we are going to chat a little bit about the degree to which we feel there's a divide between being literary and cultural critics and being fans. Hey, Neil, I've got a question. Oh, yeah. Do you ever experience tension between your work as a cultural critic and your identity as a fan? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think uh, the idea of the problematic is really relevant there. Uh, Can you explain it? Yeah. Can you explain what problematic means? Thanks, Neil. Uh, You know, in in common usage, I think people often say problematic when they just mean that they hate something or that it's terrible, (laughs) uh, which is not what it means. Uh, It's specifically not just a problem. But where there is something that is has the dimension of a problem, but there's something that doesn't have the dimension of a problem. So I actually think that uh, you two on this podcast do an excellent job of the problematic. Mental. It's not a verb, but because I'm an academic, I'm making it a verb. Yeah. Uh, it's called problematizing. Problematizing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you do a great job of problematizing that problematic thing. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> yeah, so I, I think often there is at odds there where I think uh, as a fan there's a certain gravity that pulls you towards not engaging with the problematic parts of something or even denying that there are problematic parts of something, kind of de-problematizing something. Yeah. And I think as a, when you're a cultural critic, that's, uh, that's your bread and butter. That's where you live. Yeah. The yeah. Problematic. And you don't live in, I think a mistake that a lot of people who are maybe new to literary criticism or are sort of only passingly familiar with the kind of work we do, sort of mistake it for essentially, I prove that I am smarter than a text and then I win. Um, so it's like I trick J.K. Rowling into secretly being a racist, and then I'm like, ha-ha, smarter than J.K. Rowling. Yeah, like, like you caught her. Yeah, right? like I caught her, right? Yeah. Like it's debate club, and I will always win because books can't talk back. Um, <laughs> but that's usually not what we're doing, right? Usually we are working on objects that we find fascinating and engaging and exciting in some way, um, but we are not writing, like, we're not writing book reports, right? We're not writing like, oh, this is neat. It's neat. I like it. Um, we we sort of we get further into texts, right? We talk a lot about unpacking them, as though texts are like a box full of old clothes, and you're trying to figure out what's in there. But that's really what you're doing, right? You're opening them up and you're going through what's inside and trying to sort them out and trying to understand them better. And you only, I think Derrida once said, I'm sorry. Oh God, I'm just. But I think Derrida once said when people are talking about deconstruction, which is the thing that he does and how it's really violent. And he said, I would never deconstruct something I didn't love because it would be a waste of my energy, right? Like you don't spend the time thinking critically about something that you're not in some way a little bit in love with because that's like a, just, it's a lot of work. <laughs> really, if you hate something, you're going to spend a lot of time thinking about and reading something you hate. Yeah, it's a lot of emotional work too, right? So not just the actual like work of thinking and writing or what we do is thinking and then talking or reading and then thinking and then talking or some combination of, of that. Um, but it's also the amount of work that you put into your emotional investments. We often don't... The term for this is affective labor and it's been sort of popping up in um, like blogs and that recently. So Internet feminism. Internet feminism. So affective labor is typically the type of work that um, you don't get paid for, but it's like the emotional work that you do. It typically falls to women to do it in a lot of different types of contexts, not always, but often. Um, it's but the way when women have a job, they're often the ones who sort of volunteer to spend extra time on things, talk to people who are having a bad day, talk people down when they're, you know, upset yeah. about something. You know, you end up doing twice the work because in addition to doing your actual job, you're also caring for people all the time. Yeah. Um, but you don't get paid for that because we have, you know, a patriarchal structure to our labor system. And so we only acknowledge certain forms of labor as being worthy of pay. Um, and that's forms of labor that women aren't likely or aren't as frequently doing yeah no. yeah so when you are engaging with the text you and you love that text you're spending a lot of emotional energy in interacting with it um, and if you're doing that with something that you don't love it's not just exhausting but it's not it's it's in addition to being not exhausting wow Oh, boy, I'm good at words today. In addition to being exhausting, it's also not at all rewarding. Whereas when you spend that labor, um, when you spend that time and energy on something that you do love and you are coming to understand it in different ways, in a lot of ways it's like a relationship. You're really, you're really learning more about it. Um, you are coming to understand it through different perspectives. And it's, 
it's worth it's worth it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was having a conversation with a with a dear friend of all of ours, um, who I won't name because maybe she doesn't want everybody in this room to know this. Um, but we were talking about a show we've recently both watched, Sense8, um, which I watched and I loved. Um, and then I'm also pretty critical of it because it's got some some sketchy racial tropes going on in it and a sort of a very American image of what globalization looks like. We can talk about it after. Um, but uh, I was talking about her with it. We both love it. I watched it because she told me to. And I was talking with her about it. And I started talking about this interesting critical article I'd read. And she was like, no, don't. I don't want to do that. I just want to love this thing. And I was like, oh, my God, I never just want to love anything. <laughs> like, I, the more I like something, the more I want to be like, oh, let's just rip it to shreds. It's so exciting. Sorry. <laughs> Friendship with me is fun. It's kind of. I. It's sometimes I think about that kind of that kind of critical engagement um, as. I, so we're keeping it cleanish. It's G-rated, but it's like a really erotic kind of engagement, right? Because you're like really getting into and interacting with all of the different like sensual things that come along with a text or a film or or something. It's like a really beautiful, sensual, erotic kind of relationship yeah. at its best. Yeah. So so what we've ended up doing in the podcast as we've been revisiting the books and movies and also starting to sort of move out into the larger surrounding fandom and we're sort of engaging with more other kinds of texts. Um, sorry, we call everything a text in literary criticism. So like we played the Lego Harry Potter video game, but like we call that a text because we're terrible. Or, or an archive if there's more. Or an than archive. One. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. An archive of texts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Gross. Um, the worst. The yeah, worst. but what we've been finding is sort of you know you move back and forth. You 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 go through the book and you find moments that you're like, oh my god, this moment is incredible. This is you know, Rowling has done this incredible thing in the fifth book, which we just finished talking about, where she. Um, sort of sets up a situation essentially where Harry is being gaslighted. Um, gaslit? Gaslighted. Gaslighted? Okay, we're all agreeing on gaslighted. Good, good, consensus. He's being gaslighted basically by his whole culture, saying he has experienced this intense trauma, and everybody around him is saying, like, nope, didn't happen, you're crazy, right? Which is exactly what gaslighting as a form of emotional abuse entails, that somebody says, I've been through this trauma, I've been through this experience, and everybody's like, you probably made it up for attention. That's literally what they're saying to him, right? And the, the book gives you this narrative of him refusing that and ultimately being vindicated in having his story legitimized, which for people who have an experience of abuse and an experience of not being listened to, that's just this this really, really beautiful narrative that I think is a really valuable narrative for young people to be reading, right? Like, don't listen. If, if you know something happened to you and the adults in your life are telling you to shut up about it, do not listen, right? Like, believe yourself. Um, and that's absolutely incredible and beautiful, and then we got to the end of the book, and we were like, oh, the centaur is so racist. <laughs> so very creepy, racist, sort of indigenous trope. They're all, like, burning sage and shooting arrows and, like, kidnapping women and carrying them off into the forest. And it's like, okay, that wasn't a super good job. Like, that's... And they can, those, things can, those things can coexist in a reading, right? That you can look at the book and be like, there are moments when it's incredible and moments when it is completely failed, and that 
it, like one doesn't cancel the other out. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, it'd be really nice if all the good stuff just made the bad stuff disappear. But it doesn't, right? And if you ignore the bad stuff, um, well, you, you, know, you, you ignore forms of oppression that continue to structure our society, right? I close my eyes to just not look at the racism because it makes me sad or to not look at the fat shaming because it makes me feel uncomfortable. Well, then I'm, then I'm essentially consenting to that continuing to be a thing that happens in our culture on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No dice. Mm-mm. Okay. All right. So we're going to open up the floor to questions. Um, we are interested in questions about any of the stuff that we just said, um, but also questions about the podcast, about making a podcast, about Harry Potter in general. Um, but again, be warned, you are, you are being recorded. Um, but in like a, just a loving, not judgmental way. Yeah. Yeah. So any questions? Hello. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Thank you. And I was just wondering, I didn't hear in any of the ones that I've listened to so far, which Hogwarts has Oh. <laughs> yeah, we really take that for granted, don't we? <laughs> yeah, we, do, we haven't, mean, haven't we, we talked about that in person in the countless hours that we talk around? I think I just edit it out every time because I'm like, oh, everybody already knows. <laughs> <laughs> That's the voice that I make when I'm editing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm a Ravenclaw. Yeah, I also identify as a Ravenclaw, though I believe that there's a fairly good chance I might have been sorted into Slytherin. <laughs> I just Hufflepuff. It's yeah. <laughs> wow, the most you know popular Hufflepuff said. for life. Dawn for of life. the age of Hufflepuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It's, it's said, your year, Neil. Yeah. It's your year because the new because the new movie's coming out, and it's oh, about yeah, yeah. what's his face. Newt Scamander. Yeah. Newt Scamander. Thank you. Um, I love being in a room where I can just be like, "What?" Yeah. <laughs> um, and he's a Hufflepuff, so we're gonna have a Hufflepuff hero. Right. Yeah, as a side Hufflepuff. note, as a side note, despite the fact that we are both proud Ravenclaws, um, we believe very strongly that Hufflepuff is the only Hogwarts house that has an ethical approach to pedagogy, <laughs> um, because Gryffindor, Ravenclaw, and Slytherin are all about only teaching selective subgroups of students. Right? Ravenclaw's like mm, only the smartest, no dumb students allowed. Right? Which is like a really bad approach to teaching. Um, and Gryffindor's like only the bravest, which is like you're eleven. Um, and then Slyther- Slytherin is literally just the Nazi school. Yeah. Um, like, oh, are you wealthy and white? Right. Are you white enough? And you were wealthy once. Cool. Great. Um, whereas Hufflepuff is like, yeah, no, we'll teach everybody and treat them the same. And it's like, oh, the only place you would actually send your children, right? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, like because that's how a school should work. <laughs> oh, I feel like I feel like because he's not on a mic, we should also add that our erstwhile tech support, um, Trevor Chow Fraser. Hi, how are you doing? Is one hundred percent Slytherin. Oh my god, such a Slytherin! <laughs> <laughs> look at him he's trolling us constantly. <laughs> All right, Trevor. <laughs> is the Trevor, is the mic not working? Trevor, are you trolling us right now? Oh no, the mic's not recording. Did we, did we get the previous question? That one is... You're so smart. Okay, so now if you want to ask a question, you have to come all the way up here. Oh, look oh. at this. Look at this. All right. Look at these problem-solving men. <laughs> That's why I break the mics all the time. It's not a podcast this time, so we can do physical comedy. It's great. Hi. Hi. I was wondering what you guys thought of the moment in the seventh book where... Um, <laughs> Trevor, cover your ears. Oh. Spoiler alert. 
Spoiler alert. Commence Obliviate in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Oh, I'm it's so okay. sorry. Your ears are plugged. Go ahead. Spoilers, but the moment in the seventh book where uh, Molly kills Bellatrix, mm-hmm. um, because I know Rowling has talked about it as like a moment of like the right kind of love defeating the wrong kind of love, and I've heard a lot of like differing opinions on what that moment meant and who should have had that moment to kill Bellatrix. Mm. I really, I really like that Molly swears. Um, I have this I have this really visceral memory of reading it for the first time and reading the words and I'm, I'm sorry anybody who is not comfortable with swear words just uh, but where Molly says not my daughter you bitch and then kills Bella oh god I just got shivers right now <laughs> I got shivers the first time I read it and I just got shivers right now there's something about it that is just so um, incredible uh, like the whole series is is the whole series has a subtext of um, a mother's love and the strength and the value of maternal love, which is, again, one of the things that I would say is not actually feminist, but is like friendly towards feminism. Um, and so I do think it's this like really fantastic moment. I'm really glad it goes to Molly Weasley, who for the rest of the series is like relegated to the kitchen. She's like literally in the kitchen cooking for everybody, no matter if it's her her family or the Order of the Phoenix. She's just always cooking and cleaning. Like that's literally her job for the Order of the Phoenix is to cook for them, um, which is like not a form. And like the whole time that she's doing it, her form of like very important heroism um, what you might call her affective labor Mm -hmm. is like really sort of undervalued by everybody around her right and the emotional labor that she does of caring for her family and her children and the children that she sort of adopts um, gets really sort of underplayed in the book in a lot of ways and there's these beautiful little moments where it pops up and it sort of these cracks open and the book lets you see the weight of the emotional labor that she's doing by being this sort of this love and support for the people around her, like in the moment in the Order of the Phoenix where she's trying to get rid of the Boggart, Boggart yeah. and and it turns it's turning into her whole like her, all of her children dying, and like the just the that scene of her just breaking down, right? And I mm-hmm. think I think the moment of her defending her daughter, which is really what it's more about, right? That that's this moment where finally her form of sort of maternal love gets pushed beyond this quiet behind the scenes affect of labor to something that becomes heroic in that moment in a way that we can recognize. Um, and I think that there's something, there is something really sort of beautiful and powerful mm-hmm. about that. Um, and partially because it's not the only portrait of female heroism that we get in the books. Like if she was the only woman we ever saw do anything cool, that would be, Unfortunate that it's like, mm, you can only be a mom. But we get lots of versions of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so ultimately, I'm glad that she, yeah. gets, that she gets a moment of, of a asterisk, asterisk kicking. Yes. <laughs> Good job. Thank you. Nice catch. That's how, that's how swearing out loud works, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm going to wait for the film episode, actually. To talk okay. About that, the film okay. version oh. of that scene. <laughs> Neil yeah. has very important thoughts, and you don't—you haven't earned them yet. Sorry. I've <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> seen the movie for like four years. Really, quick. <laughs> really hard on Neil. Hi. Hi. Uh, I've heard criticisms that a lot of people compare the movies and the books, so they say that Ginny Weasley is definitely downplayed in the movies as opposed to the books. Do you agree with this? And what do you think that represents about movies versus books portrayal of feminism? 
This is a good movie question, Neil. Hey, Neil, yeah, you want to talk about Just for you, buddy. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, fellow male. <laughs> um, you got to yeah, look well, out for each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who else will? We'll give each other um, the male solidarity <laughs> gesture. That's, that's just this. Oh, okay. That's just finger guns. <laughs> Wow. Um, so much physical comedy. Yeah, no, I think, I think there's been... A, yeah, we're really playing around with the physical comedy in this episode. This is going to be a maddening podcast to listen to. Um, yeah, I think there's been an undercurrent in a lot of the film episodes uh, where we've been talking about characters who have a kind of richness in the books. They have details, and you hear about them for a longer period of time. And in the movies, I think... Part of it is just because of how movies work that those characters wind up getting sidelined. But I do think there's something political about the choices of which characters kind of get extremely minimized. Um, I mean, uh, thinking of examples, um, yeah, I, I mean, sorry, I should think about Ginny Weasley, I guess. Since that's what you're asking. <laughs> that example um, he used, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true, actually. I mean, I do think even just that the character, the equivalent screen time to page time feels uh, much lesser. It feels much thinner to me as well. I remember when I reached the when I finished watching the movies. Um, if you're thinking about that character, it's one of the characters who I, I just feel like most of what I know and think about Ginny Weasley comes from the books, right? I, I yeah. think if this is a weird thought experiment, but if only the movies existed, I don't know that the character would be so rich or so well thought of. I don't know. What do you think? I have this sort of just this theory just formulated in my head just now, which is so we talk a lot in the podcast about how the book series is written from Harry's perspective. And so there's a lot of information left out that you know is happening, but he doesn't narrate it because he's an unreliable narrator, right? As we all would be of our own lives. So he only narrates stuff he cares about. And that's why the books, as they proceed, get more sophisticated and give more and more time to the. interior lives of people around him as he grows up and becomes somebody who can like actually think about what other people are feeling um and so in the books you get these little glimpses even before she becomes an important character you get little glimpses of Ginny and the sort of rich complex emotional life that she is living in the shadow of 400 brothers yeah um and what that would be like to be a you know a little girl growing up in a house with like just that much aggressive masculine energy um and you get just hints that sort of eventually grow into her being this interesting rich character and there are moments in the movie adaptations where i I feel like the director or the screenwriter has failed to understand that the books are written from harry's perspective and that if you want to make them if you want to actually create the world of hogwarts you have to add dimension around the edges of what Harry tells you mm-hmm. because there are things that are happening around the periphery of his life that he's not observing but that are there yeah but when the movies fail to do that and still only show you Harry's perspective but do it in a film style that implies like an omniscient narrator then you end up writing out characters who Harry's just not interested in telling you about Yeah, I find it, uh, even just on a visual level, because you think you could translate that into a film, I find it very surprising that it's really only Prisoner of Azkaban in the movies that does a very deep field of focus where you see characters moving in the background. If you're watching for the film technique, it's just surprising because it's such a rich setting and a rich world that, for the most part, we're very much focused on the foreground. 
those things. Yeah. Neil so insists Prisoner of Azkaban is like an interesting, sophisticated movie, <laughs> but I stand by it being like an acid trip. <laughs> it, it, made, it made you physically ill. It I made think. me physically ill. Yeah. I watched the first half with Carla in a hotel room, and I, we kept having to pause it and be like, what is happening? <laughs> I don't understand this. It upset me. All right. Hi. Uh, hi. Um... I was wondering. I thought that was Neil, and I was about to yell at him. <laughs> Thanks for I'm joining us at this you. panel, Neil. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was just wondering uh, what you guys think of uh, kind of fandom's uh, perception of Ginny. Uh, I, I don't know. Just over the years in fandom, I've noticed that like sometimes it can be pretty negative. Mm-hmm. Um, how they how they approach her, and I was just wondering if you guys think like compared to like the books and movies. Can you tell us more? Because we are only, it's only oh, via okay. 100% of what we know about fandom is stuff that people send us on Twitter because we have a strict policy against ever researching anything. Okay. Um, <laughs> and so we're only just starting to get bits. Like people give us links on Twitter and then we can read those. But we can't go and find anything ourselves. Sure. Uh, yeah. I like hung out with some people I didn't really know the other day and mm-hmm. they're like, Ginny's the worst character and how what? did she wind up with Harry? <laughs> like, just as a random example and, and you know... I was... Did you slap them right in the face? <laughs> violence is never the answer. Sometimes violence is the answer. Your feminism isn't my feminism. <laughs> okay, Hey, that's an ideological split that you just witnessed okay. right on stage. Sorry. <laughs> wow. Yes, so you, you have encountered sort of a negativity against Ginny as a character. Yeah, um, like, uh, I've read fan fiction, and uh, <laughs> I find that, uh, that they'll, act- they'll treat the character, like, pretty horrifically to kind of get her out of the picture sometimes. Huh. Um, wow. uh, mm-hmm. Just, like, really negative tropes and... and Stuff, but huh. obviously you don't would, would you say that the representation of Ginny in fandom um, connects more to Ginny in the movies than in the books? Or does it just seem like... Uh, in that basically they want her out of the way, sure. Yeah. <laughs> is it because everybody's so obsessed? Is it that thing like um, because everybody is so obsessed with shipping Harry with various characters, they dislike the actual person he ends up with? So it's like, I need to get rid of Ginny so I can put Harry with Draco Malfoy or whoever I think Harry should have ended up with. Minerva McGonagall. <laughs> she would take such good emotional care of him. She would always make him eat biscuits, even when he didn't want to. It's important to stay healthy. I'm, I, I'm sorry that... It, we don't actually have like a solid answer to your question, but what I would like you to know is that that's super interesting, and you have just brought to light something that we didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Which is yeah. really great. I, I do wonder if that connects to that previous question, or if there's yeah, a kind of that's that interesting. Yeah. yeah. Huh. I mean, she's really interesting in the books, um, but not until a little bit later. Hmm. Well, the movie basically reduced her to a love interest, whereas the books she was actually a full form character. Yeah, yeah, for the yeah. podcast audience, somebody just pointed out that the movies reduce her to a love interest, but in the book, she's actually a fully-fledged character with a rich emotional life. So maybe it is, it is yeah. that sort of remembering her through the movies, where all she stands for is Harry's love interest, and you seem to sort mm. of write her out. Mm. You know what? We'll look into it. We won't. We're going to forget. <laughs> Tweet at us, and then we'll look into it. <laughs> no. Yes? Hey, witches. Uh, I would like to know what feminist spell you wish you had in your everyday life 
all I want is to set things on fire. <laughs> I want... I want to be able to burn it to the ground literally every time. Marcel once joked that the two of us could never be roommates because we would burn our apartment down within, like, the first week. It's just, like, too much collective anger. I would really like to have a spell that causes, like, if somebody mansplains something, like, their, like their tongue falls out. Wait, you could do, like, Langlock, which is where their tongue gets stuck to the roof of their mouth and they can't talk anymore. But I want it to be mansplaining specific. Well, that's, that's a Manlock. Manlock. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. That's mine. Neil? Um, I, as a man, I wish that my second thoughts about things were my first thoughts, so I kind of wish that I had a spell that would cause that to happen. <laughs> so I'll think or I'll see something, and then I'll think, hey, hold on a moment. And so I wish I thought, hey, hold on a moment first. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what I would say. Hi. Hello. Uh, I just want to say you guys are awesome. It's really cool. I'm going to check out the podcast. Um, wanted to point out that my favorite example of the day of how the patriarchy brings me down every day is the fact that somebody scheduled the Tolkien feminist one at the same time as this yeah. one. And I, and I was standing in line like, why? And then I was like, oh, I know the patriarchy. <laughs> anyway. Right? Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, you are correct. I have been reading a lot on a lot of news about how um, trigger warnings are a big thing now. And it's um, a lot of people feel like they're censoring... Um, not only debate online, like I know it started as a feminist thing online, but now in academia, it's really mm-hmm. censoring conversation and causing issues there. And I was just wondering if you guys um, agree with that or what's your experience with trigger warnings in your work? And I, I suppose, I guess, if you wanted to relate it to Harry Potter, like, because there are a lot of themes that could, like, ish, like, like warrant a trigger mm-hmm. warning for Harry mm-hmm. Potter, like, how you think that would change the reading of it or anything? Yeah, I That's mean, a great question. Yeah, it is a great question. Um, Trigger warnings, as I understand them, emerged, I believe, in universities first um, as a syllabus design thing, right? That if you were assigning a required text, you would offer a trigger warning in case any of your students had trauma that related to the text that you were going to be reading. Um, And in that sense, um, it's not about, I mean, the criticism tends to be around this sort of BS, BS language of PC culture and how it's like oppressing us all. Right. If anybody ever says the word politically correct, just replace it in your head with like not a terrible human, and that's what they mean, right? Like, why should I have to be not a terrible human? Um, or like respect not, everybody equally. Yeah. yeah. Why should I have to respect yeah. everybody? Respecting equally? other people is silencing me. Um, <laughs> and in that sense, like trigger warnings are uh, recognizing that in the space of the classroom, you as an instructor have a great deal of control over young people. And those young people have experiences that you don't know about. And that insofar as you can, you want to create a space in the classroom where nobody's going to like have a panic attack because you're forcing them to read something that's genuinely going to trigger them um, based, you know, because they need to read that text in order to do well in your class. right? And so it's about creating a safe space. It's about the fact that university should be a safe and inclusive space. It's about the fact that you know, school as an institution should be about including everybody as much as you can. And some people, like trauma is real, and PTSD is real, and triggers are real. Um, and they get misused, and I would say go ahead and let them be misused if their actual incorporation into our, our sense of how we teach and how we talk is saving some people from having to revisit their own traumas. 
-hmm. would be my take on trigger warnings. Yeah, I have I have never had um, a class conversation uh, forestalled because of a trigger warning that I provided on the syllabus or at the beginning of starting to read a book. I've never had people unable to discuss an issue because they knew that something was coming that if they wanted to, they could skip over those two pages or whatever. Yeah, yeah. it's never been a problem. I think trigger warnings are extremely valuable and important. Yeah. All right. I think... Mm, can you add it in the mic? <laughs> but then you're going to be the last person. Run. <laughs> Just an important addition to trigger warnings is that they're not necessarily a censorship where they're shutting down a conversation. They are often just a brace for impact. Mm -hmm. A lot of yeah. people want to have the conversation, but you can't always control your emotional impact of something that's happening. And, mm -hmm. and I use impact as a physical term because it can feel impactful. Mm -hmm. So a trigger warning gives you the opportunity to go, okay, we're about to talk about something that hurts. And yeah. then that's all you need. And then you can carry on with the conversation. Or if you don't have the spoons or the emotional oomph left to have that conversation that day, you do have the opportunity to back out. Mm -hmm. But it's not censoring. It's merely prepping. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So think yeah. of them in those yeah. terms. Yeah, that's, Absolutely. That's I think that's, think that's a great way to word it. Yeah, yeah for sure. Thank you. So we are out of time, um, and so I'm going to turn the page to this last thing and say thanks so much, everyone, for joining us today. Um, if you want to learn more about the podcast, you can check out ohwitchplease.ca or subscribe on iTunes. We have like 14 episodes-ish. I don't know. Some episodes. Um, we're also very active on Twitter, so do tweet at us. We love hearing from people. Um, we're at ohwitchplease on Twitter, um, and we have created a hashtag just for the live show, so if anybody was here and wants to follow up on any of these conversations, just use hashtag WhichPleaseLive to chat with us. Um, and we do hope to hear from you. We love carrying on these conversations in the, in the internet world. Um, but until then, later, later witches! witches. <laughs>